You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the BH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan White. Greetings and welcome to the BH Photography Podcast. The November 2015 issue of the Indonesian edition of National Geographic magazine is dedicated to the subject of climate change. It's also the first cover of National Geo that does not have a gorgeous picture on the cover. Instead of a picture, you're looking at big block letters that basically say, sorry, there are no beautiful pictures of climate change. Can we survive? Our guests today are three photographers who have dedicated their time and efforts to photographing climate change, each from a different perspective. Are their photographs beautiful? In an unnerving way, many of them are. That's something we will discuss. Greg Kahn has been documenting the effects of climate change along Maryland's eastern shore in a project called Three Millimeter. Everyday Climate Change, the Instagram collaborative project dedicated to documenting the various effects of climate change across seven continents is the name of a project that Ed Kashi, a contributing photographer for National Geographic and the Seven Photo Agency, is involved with. Also joining us today is Carolyn Minastra, whose Witness Tree project illustrates through the use of words and pictures the state of the world around us and how it is changing. Welcome to each of you. Thank you for being here today. I have a feeling we're going to have a lot to talk about. Um, let's start by, by each of you giving us a brief bio. And how did you get involved as photographers in the subject of climate change? Okay, Karen, let's start with you. My background is actually as a fine artist. Um, I have an MFA from Yale, and I had studied at Fordham University uh, English literature many years ago. My background was really just in straight fine art photography, but then I did an artist residency in Iceland and was watching icebergs calve off of their largest glacier there. And the scene just kind of haunted me and stuck with me. And the following year, I heard an interview with activist Bill McKibben that really was the tipping point for me. And it just made me realize I, I didn't want to be doing just straight fine art photography anymore. I wanted to use my camera as a way to create action and inspire other people, hopefully, to get involved in the climate change issue. Calving, that is supposed to have an amazing sound to go along yeah, with it. Am it I does. right about that? It's supposed yeah, to have yeah, an yeah. incredible yeah. audio it's, impact. It's, you know, part of the problem is uh, a lot of these things are beautiful. Yes. The, yeah, the, beautiful, the but in a, in a frightening yeah, kind of way. I call it bittersweet. Greg, tell us about what you're up to. Well, uh, I've been working on a project for the past three years on the eastern shore of Maryland uh, documenting sea level rise. And mine is really more looking at the land as, as a, a I guess I'd say uh, the way that identity is shaped for the historic community that lives out there. So what happens is as the land is washed away by the rising sea levels, the the people have to find new ways of life and, and things like uh, historical aspects of their community it's a huge are now fishing changing. Culture, if I'm not all it's around a here. it's a huge fishing culture. It kind of gets looked over because everyone goes over to the uh, Delaware shore. Yeah, yeah, and so the eastern shore in the bay side kind of gets overlooked, but it it does have the um, sea level rise at twice the global average. So what happens is they're not only getting sea level rise and erosion, they also have land that's sinking. So they're getting a combination of, of climate change factors that are slowly taking away their land. Now your project is called Three Millimeters. What's that based on? So Three Millimeters is the average in which the sea level is rising. It's about the thickness of a dime. And so a lot of uh, opponents will actually raise up a dime when they got hearings or, or, or committees and say, look, this is all that it's rising. 
And so it's kind of playing on that idea of such an insignificant amount causing so much change. And there's also all of the other changes that go along. It's not just water swallowing land. There's a whole, it's a chain effect of what goes on. Exactly. Ed, tell us about your, how you got involved in all this. You, your background's pretty extensive also and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so, um, well, I'm a photojournalist and a filmmaker and um, it's interesting, this issue is not something that I was consciously involved in, but over the last, I'd say, almost three decades of working around the world, and I've done a lot of work in the Middle East and um, done stories for National Geographic on, you know, water problems in the Middle East. Over time, it sort of crept up on me that this was an issue and um, that we really had to address. And then I was one of the photographers that covered Hurricane Sandy for Time magazine. And I, oh, well, before that, did the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, which were more overt examples of how, let's say, dramatic manifestations of these changes are taking place. I see this as one of these issues that um, shouldn't be viewed, the, the prism in which it's viewed, the, the discussion is really off base. That this is, I don't really care if uh, it's man-made or not, or, or what this is about is these changes are happening and they're gonna have really negative effects on not only our planet, but on people. And that I truly believe that if we come together to use our intelligence and technology and, and innovation, we will not only you know, help to mitigate the ill effects of climate change, but I think we'll also create a hell of a lot of jobs. Yeah. I want to just come in. Oh. I like the fact that you said this issue crept up on you because that is um, what's happening with Three things like sea level rise. And, <laughs> yeah. and I think a lot of people aren't consciously thinking of it. And so it's creeping up on a lot of people. Well, and that's, and that's the thing. I'm glad you touched on it as well, because when I've been out on the Eastern shore, it's a, it's a community that doesn't really love the idea of the science of sea level rise. They like to combat it. But what I what I ask is, well, what do you think's going on? And they have plenty of answers, but it all comes back to a central theme. Something is happening, whether it's natural or man-made. They see that their yard gets flooded more often. They see that there's more storms and the tides are higher and washes out the road. So everyone knows that something's happening and you can debate that process to an end. But where I'm starting from is a point after that. And I'm saying, okay, we all know something's happening. And what I'm documenting is how that's affecting the people that have lived there. How do we differentiate climate change photography and the broadest subject of our mistreatment of the earth and its resources? I actually don't think we should differentiate. I think they're all related and overlapping. And um, like I said, I was very interested just in environmental issues prior to starting this project. And so it was something I was very conscientious of. But I think, I think it's all interrelated. A lot of times when I give presentations, I don't say, I don't necessarily always just say this is a climate change effect. I talk about the problems we have in the environment. So I think it's important to keep it kind of all in the same pocket to talk about. I look at a lot of photographs of, 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 of climate change. If you go to sites like Gizmodo, they always have these wonderful gifs of, you know, here's, here's 10 years ago, here's today. And it's very graphic. It's very, if, if you can't see what's happening, it's rather startling. And, and it, it takes a lot to me of a good photograph to really illustrate that. And looking at each of your work, it's striking to see how it is. But you, you wonder at some point, are we looking at pictures that are pretty pictures that are frightening? And, and it's a difficult thing, I guess, to tie in your pictures to what's really going on. Thoughts about that? So last year I worked on a short film for The New Yorker with uh, the great Matt Black, a photographer based in the Central Valley of California. 
about the drought in California. And, um, you know, I lived in San Francisco for 25 years, um, and it's pretty dramatic what's going on there. We were, we were seeing, you know, huge orange grove trees being, being dug up by, you know, uh, tractors and wide swaths of land in what is really the most productive agricultural yeah. land, certainly in America, if not the world. You know, until, we, until we're really honest with ourselves— and again, what I also hate is this idea that somehow if you believe in climate change and you believe in trying to figure out how to be better stewards of the earth, you're anti-business. I think it's a bunch of crap. I want businesses to succeed. If businesses and corporations don't succeed, I don't get much work as a photographer. And quite frankly, my neighbors won't have jobs and on and on and on. So this, we've got to get away from this sort of, it's a like polemical argument that is disingenuous, doesn't address the facts and reality on the ground. And what it ends up doing is dividing people. So instead of having people working together, and I don't mean to be so idealistic, but I'm sorry it's the way I feel and it's the only way to have any hope and to instill this in our kids and in the next generation that figure out a way to talk about this thing in a collaborative way. Here we are photographers trying to use our craft to make a change um, I know that when I go visit my son in, in, in Ohio, I drive through Pennsylvania and you see these large billboards there that say uh, essentially the sun sets, but coal is forever. Now, I happen to love that. I, I, you know, I'm saying to myself, <laughs> obviously, there is a strong interest in keeping the coal industry alive in Pennsylvania because in parts of the, that state, that's all that there is. H how effective can photography really be when you have – this kind of a mindset going on, in not just Pennsylvania, in many, many places, there are a lot of interests that are, are economic and are political. And, and can we really use photography to make a big dent in that? I, I think we can. I think it needs to be honest, straightforward photography in that sense, though, because a lot of what I end up seeing is the, here's a disaster scenario, what New York's going to look like in 200 years, and then you see the Statue of Liberty half underwater. And that kind of exaggeration, that kind of, you know, let's see all the monuments underwater is harmful because people look at that and go, well, that's not going to happen. And then they don't believe the actual problem of what's going on. So instead of showing something that's nuanced and complex, everyone just goes for the extreme. So, while you know, you see that ad that says Coles forever. We all know that's not the case, but, you know, we need we need someone to come out there and, and show images that get to the heart of the matter, but don't exaggerate, because I think exaggerating the issue also is hurting. I'm actually trying to get access to a place that's that's been burned a few times by newspapers mm -hmm. in terms of, of talking. It's Smith Island. And so uh, I was just having a conversation with one of the women who runs a bed and breakfast. And I said, look, like, I'm not going to I'm not going to be dishonest with you. Like, I'm, it has to do with environmental changes and things like that. But my focus is on the community and showing how special this community is, because they are they're 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 wonderful. I mean, there's only 280 people out there. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just, really this is a wonderful place. It's the only last inhabited island in Maryland, Chesapeake Bay side. It's really great. So we're going through this long conversation. I said, well, why don't we get some people together, like the people that, that are the influencers in town. So when I get there, we can all sit down. I can explain this to them and we can work something out this way. Because otherwise, like it's kind of going in there and, and talking to them about climate change, they're, they're like, no, well, we've already had all these places come well, here and burn us. Is, you know, they're, they're certainly not to blame at all. And I found like trying to talk to people about drought, like I stopped to talk to a dairy farmer and I just asked him, I said, you know, I was just curious. And so I was just driving by and I saw, you know, when your cows come out of the barn, they're getting 
you know, the spray of water. Can you just tell me what that's about? And he's like, I want you to know I reuse that water five times. And I said, that's amazing. Tell me about it. How do you use it? You know, because yeah. he thought I was there to point fingers. I was like, I'm yeah. not blaming you for the drought. <laughs> right. But, you know, people are very sensitive, totally. especially in California, the water issue, you know. When you say that they f- were burned, what do you mean by that? So once again, it's it's this extreme view of this place. Um, they're, they might actually be a little bit safer than some of the mainland areas but they are dealing with a significant amount of erosion. And so there are changes happening to them and they know it because they have the Army Corps of Engineers building a wall like a several miles out into the bay to protect them from the, the oncoming water. Yeah. So they, they do realize and no one's gonna say no to that, but they also, you know, somebody comes into town and says, hey, I wanna do a story about Smith Island Cakes, which is Maryland State Cake. And they go there and they use that as like, oh. cakes are rising, land is sinking, and they go, Oh, that wasn't really yeah. oh, no, that's, what we yeah, what we thought. The story. So yeah. it, it just becomes this they, like economic story about yeah. you know, and and I get it. It's one of the you know you're either a waterman or you make Smith Island cakes there. It's like you know two really the only two industries there. I know a lot of your work. I was looking at your site earlier. You you've been around to a lot of different locations. Yeah, maybe not as many as that. <laughs> um, but I uh, I purposely chose to also cover all seven continents uh, with the witness tree because I really wanted to show the global connections. And so I had a sabbatical year from teaching where I traveled continuously for nine months. And I also wanted it to be continuous. I didn't want to do a lot of back and forth flights, conscientious of my my own carbon footprint in doing this project, but hoping that by getting the message out, you know, it's doing a greater good, I hope. Uh, but, By the way, I'm, into, I'm big into biking. Yeah, so, um, me too. Well, there we go. Very good. Thank <laughs> and you. Actually, and I'm totally jealous. Yeah. <laughs> you had nine months. In- <laughs> yeah. Um, which also really got me into space to really, you know, focus on this project. And I'm sure Ed can speak to this too, that the climate change denial, and I say this now with some authority, is really strong in the U.S. and not elsewhere. Uh, when I went to China, I said, can I talk about climate change here? And people wanted to talk about climate change with me. Now, here's a question uh, that, that I, I, we were wondering about, and, and that is that a lot of this involves traveling to places that are not exactly easy to get to. Uh, and also, you're, you, you could be stepping on toes for political reasons and economic reasons too. Um, what is it like getting to access to some of these more extreme places? Uh, and what are some interesting little roadblocks you might have run into along the way or surprises you might have run into along the way while trying to get these images? I yeah. could not have done this project without the help of strangers because, uh, you know, I was traveling alone as a woman and uh, a lot of times there were um, men in their 70s who kind of took me on as their daughter and just wanted to help, you know, see me safe. And so getting to the Mingyang Glacier in Dachin, China was a difficult place to get to. No one spoke English. And so there was a group of Japanese uh, tourists in their 70s, this group of four men, and one spoke a little English and one spoke a little Chinese. And so they managed to get me to, you know, a taxi driver to get me to this one glacier. And I hiked up by myself. And then they, when I came down, they were all waiting for me. <laughs> and the, the you know, the Japanese men would not leave until I was down safely. And they started clapping when I got to the bottom. Um, so, you know, and I, it just buoyed me to feel that, you know, and they knew what I was doing and I explained what I was doing to them, but that people really want to help you get your message out and, um, and do it safely, you know? So I, there were places I did feel a little unsafe, but that, you know, again, was very minimal. And for the most part, I felt people were very supportive of what I was doing. Ed, you've been to a lot of places that FedEx doesn't deliver to. Um, <laughs> you must've seen some pretty extreme, extreme things and hit some crazy roadblocks along the way. Well, the thing is though, I can't remember who already said this, but it's really only in the United States where you know, when I've worked on a couple of drought pieces for the New Yorker where, you know, it's like, you can't say Mm -hmm. this is a story about climate change everywhere else in the world. 
Yeah, I had that it, in the Central Valley. I yeah. had to say I'm doing a project about the drought. Right, exactly. And and so it's, you know, again, our sort of political dialogue in this country is so sort of stunted by extremism and and also this polarization. But we all know this. But, you know, anyway, but, I, you know, out in the world, I've not had anybody stop me or get in my way because I might have been doing something that was related to a drought or climate change or anything like that, you know. So um, it's really just in the United States that we have to deal with this. If you know? I keep, you have anything to? Well, I do want to say yeah, one yeah, thing. Go, sorry, go, go. Yeah, which yeah. is sort of going back a little bit, or maybe not. But is that um, I think it's also really incumbent upon us to find ways to, as visual storytellers or artists or whatever you want to call yourself, to show how it's possible for change to happen. So, for instance, when I think about the coal country folks where, again, they come from a really proud tradition of people who do a really hard job. And at some point in history, we were really dependent on them doing that job. And they risked their lives and their health for the sake of having a cheap source of energy. So now we know not only is it bad for the workers, but it's also bad for the environment. But we can't just leave these people stranded. They're good people. These are good communities. They're the bedrock of this country in many ways. So I would love to see stories. I wanted to work on a story earlier this year, and I couldn't do it in West Virginia, you know, sort of the heart of coal country where, you know, people are realizing this and they're taking matters in their own hands and they're getting retrained and they're starting, you know, they're, they're finding new businesses and jobs to do. Well, it would be great to do a story. Now, they might not be sexy pictures. I don't know. It'd be a challenge. But those are the kinds of stories that I think are really important to get out there because I really do believe that if all we do is show the negativity and hopelessness in the world, we will not only lose our audience, but we don't really achieve very much. I mean, there's obviously bearing witness is incredibly important, but I think part of what we have to do is also tell stories that engender hope and that, that, that show how there are solutions and there's another way to look at things. So maybe if you did a bunch of stories about how people in the coal country are now turning to new crops or new f jobs, then the next generation of people out of that area and people outside of that area will go, oh, well, all hope's not lost or, hey, let's, let's invest more in those things so that we bring people along instead of leaving them behind. You bring up an interesting point. And we have three photographers here today, each of you dealing with climate change. And there are other photographers out there working to the same basic goal. At what point do you say to yourself, or do you read enough, or do you realize that we might have gone too far, it might be too late? And do you find yourself saying, I might be just doing something that's futile? Or do you know people who have hit a wall and said, I don't see the purpose of trying to do this anymore. We missed the boat. Well, with my story, there is this, this concept that a certain amount of damage has already been done, and we're going to see where sea level rises in the next 50, 100 years and how much of that uh, peninsula will be taken away. But the idea is it's, it's kind of like a cautionary tale that hasn't happened, which you don't get to see that often. So you're documenting something as you know what the disaster to unfold will be, but you can actually photograph before it happens. And so it's an idea to say, let's, you know, talking about community again, it's, there's a lot of opposition out there to, to me using the word climate change, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but there's not opposition for me to be out there documenting this wonderful historic community that's, you know, absolutely necessary to preserve. And so approaching it from that angle and talking to people, 
about it from that angle. They're much more welcoming. They want to see their community grow and thrive and they want to see it stay around. So that's how I approach it. I don't, I, it's not an argumentative thing that I come in there. It's, it's more in support. It's more, you know, for, to, to hold up this community and say, we don't have many historic communities like this anymore. You know, this is important. And so being able to show that for me is the idea that it can help shape opinion for future loss rather than saying, you know, let's stop this where it is because there's a certain amount that's already going to happen, but more can happen and it can get worse. We're not hitting rock bottom. There's still more that can go. So my, my photographs are supposed to show this community and have people say, oh, you know what? Like we saw that happen. We don't want any more to. I also feel that I will continue to keep photographing the effects of climate change. I'm not doing the mass amount of traveling I've done. I'm trying to stay more local. When I go someplace for vacation, I'm always like, what's the climate change issue here? Sorry, I have to go (laughs) photograph for a few hours. But I am focusing on solutions. So I'm rolling out a new website, thewitnesstree.org, and chapters of um, three at a time over the coming weeks and months. Um, trying to, you know, draw people into that issue. But my final chapter is actually on solutions and it is going to be the next project I do where I hope it's going to be much more locally based. So I will stay in here in New York and I'm going to be looking for photographers to help me in different places around the country and really have it, or at least start with it, um, with community-based solutions in the United States. Again, because we have the most work to do to change opinion. I don't have a sense of hopelessness. Um, People tell me what I've been doing is important. That always, you know, gives me stamina and encourages me to go on. But I'm definitely interested in, um, and I'm getting more involved with communities um, like the permaculture communities that are interested in change and just going forward. And I almost feel like let's just leave it all behind. (laughs) Let's just think forward and move forward. Good points. Yeah, I never find any photographer or journalist for that matter who feels that it's hopeless or they've given up. So it's interesting with the Everyday Climate Change feed, um, which was started by James Whitlow Delano, who's an American photographer based in Japan. Talk about community. You've got, I don't know what the number is, 30 or 40 or more photographers around the world, around the world that represent all cultures, religions, maybe not all continents. And, um, you know, we're all contributing to this one feed, not getting paid for it, obviously. And um, it's pretty cool, I think. It's an example of the photographic community coming together. And it's interesting, almost every time I post, I lose some followers. But um, um, That's okay. And I, I figure it's because I have, you know, hashtag climate change. or <laughs> So I think it's really, and you know, well, James is amazing. Uh, he really should have been here. But um, he's been able to have, get us exhibitions in Italy. There's another one. Coming up, I can't remember just today. I got an email from him. James? James Whitlow Delano. Oh, okay, got it. Okay. This feed is such a great example of how the photographic community can come together, not for financial gain, um, and really pull our our minds, our work together. The one thing about posting for this feed is it's incredibly important that your caption information is tight and because it's – it's some have not been. Uh, I don't think. I hope none of mine have been that way. But we work pretty rigorously on getting it right, you know. And sometimes it's reactive. Like a couple of months ago, the Times came out with a story about flaring. You know, flaring from oil facilities was like I read it and I was like, oh my god, I've photographed that in a bunch of places in the world, particularly in Nigeria. So I immediately said to my studio manager, take this article, you know, grab the important bits that make it timely and you know the this, the facts, and because it's a huge polluter. 
gas flaring from oil facilities, and then you know go through my, the archive, pick some pictures. So to me, that is exciting. Mm-hmm. And again, mm-hmm. I'm not getting paid to do this, but it's like this is why I do what I do. That I might have images that can inform or inspire or educate. And the other thing is that you know, again, I really do believe this. If you change one mind, you've you, you've you've had an impact. Right. And I'm good sure point. we're Very changing way more than one mind. Well, not even our changing. That's why I'm saying like sometimes preaching to the choir is the best thing because what we need to do is take the people who already have the subtle interest and knowledge and awareness of climate change and get them more involved. Yeah. So and then let them work on their families. You know? Yeah. No, it's true. <laughs> but you know, the idea is let's let's move away from the polar opposites of the conversation and come find a common ground so that we can have a more substantive discussion that moves us forward together. It's about responsibility is really what it is. Well, and the politicians are a huge, they have a huge, you know, climate change is one of those things, unless you live in a place where you're directly impacted by it, it's kind of one of those things that's out there, you know, lots of things to worry about in life, right? right. But anyway, I just feel that we're, we're really not being served well by our public servants on this issue. Before I fold up into fetal position and start rocking silently <laughs> and humming to myself, uh, I find it interesting that we're, we're having an audio discussion about visual images, uh, which is always kind of a funny aspect of this show. And uh, if, if each of you can give me an example of something that you witnessed on this journey that really struck you and or shook you about what's happening climate-wise, something that you photographed or maybe just viewed. Because, again, we're looking at pictures, and quite often iceberg pictures are pretty cool. The, the fact that you just had this thing inside of Manhattan fall off an island is a whole other thing. But you know, what, what, what things have you seen that struck you the most about how the world is changing now? You want to start, Greg? Sure. Uh, so I, a couple Octobers ago, I took a, a flight over the eastern shore to kind of get some uh, aerials of, of, of different landscapes that are out there. And uh, crossing over the Blackwater National Wildlife Refuge, what I saw, um, and I, I got this picture, as, you know, the sun's coming up, there was fog that day, everything worked out just great. But what's there is you can see this path of water that's cutting through some of the area. And then beyond that, you see all the dead trees because they've been inundated with salt water. And then beyond that, you, st- you see the trees that still have leaves on them. And it was just this like perfect progression that you could see it's, it's very slow, takes years to happen, but you can actually see what comes next. You can see the progress of where the water is going. And eventually it goes from trees that have that are full and alive to dying, to dead, to marsh, to open water. And there was that just that exact process happening right there all in one scene. So that to me was just like, you know, here it is. You know, if there's any more proof that you need, this is it right here. You can see what, what the chain reaction is. Almost like a graph. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess for me, I think of two or three things. One was last year working on the California drought piece where we decided to do an aerial of the Central Valley. And, and I mean, there it was. You had, I don't know, is it 50,000 acres but or more, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of acres of land that were, you know, five years ago all green and you had a checkerboard of brown and green. So you're talking about billions of dollars also of lost profit from that. So that was a very graphic uh, uh, illustration of, of how the drought in California uh, is, is impacting things. You know, another would be just to have a day in, uh, you know, Delhi in uh, pea soup air where, 
you know, in India where, or a number of Indian cities where you just, it's, you don't want to breathe, it's disgusting. And, and, you know, that's because of all the pollutants from burning fossil fuel, you know? Um, so those are the sorts of things that, that always, well, anyway, those are the sort of graphic illustrations I can think of. And of course, in the Niger Delta in Nigeria, where you've got, you're in this gorgeous, you know, one of the, I think the third, third largest wetlands in the world, and and so much of it is decimated. You have the flaring, and you know again the the, the odors and the and the the impact on the foliage. On you know so much arable land is lost. You know there's there are very real impacts from this. For me, it's probably uh, after fires in East Bastrop, Texas, which is just a little bit outside Austin, Texas, in 2011. They, um, I was down there actually photographing a wedding, which has helped fund many of my <laughs> trips, uh, gotten me to places. And I decided to go photograph in this community that had been just wiped out. Uh, 1,500 homes were burned by wildfires in the third year of the drought. And I, you know, there was no one around. They, everyone had been evacuated. There was no homes. But I just walked around these communities and uh, it was so sad to me. It was it was the saddest time um, because there was absolutely no sound. And it, it took me a while to realize why I felt so unsettled. I could still smell the smoke and, you know, there were fires burning nearby. But there was no um, birds or bees, no children, obviously, no, no voices. And it was the, almost like the quietest I'd ever heard a community. And to me, that was the saddest part. And it really just like tore at my heart to to be there and uh, realize so many people had lost their homes to this wildfire. And, you know, the drought and the wildfires continue everywhere, everywhere. And people just don't want to see the connection. And not, and I, I do want to acknowledge that not every disaster, not every natural disaster is connected to climate change. And we know that, but all these things are increasing. I think that definitely bears saying, because people will say, well, how can you say that was related to climate change? But I think it's all related. And um, definitely you know, storms are increasing. In yes. Yeah. So all these sure. things are changing. I mean, it was 64 degrees yesterday on November, whatever, 16th in New York City. It's beautiful, but it a, shouldn't be. Do you have be. a problem with that? <laughs> did, did, you finish the, did you finish the wedding, by the way? Uh, that was before. That was right, after. Right. I, I, I do my job and then I, and then I do my art. <laughs> so. Oh, that's great stuff. But that is, that'll happen, right? You have a cold winter and then people are like, you know, there's no climate change. You know, it's, no, there's it's, no global warming. No global warming. It's climate Excuse change. Me. Right, right, right. It's just not as simple as that. But again, I wish the conversation would move away from, you know, this the our direct relationship to climate change and the fact is that we have to find sustainable forms of energy because I also believe it's going to create so many jobs and innovation and technological development that will benefit humanity. All right. Any last remarks from anybody you want to throw in there, little thoughts you have on the subject? I just want to give a shout out to people who are doing re really great work. Gideon Mandel, who's doing the Drowning World Project. I, I got to speak to him via Skype and was very motivated by his project. The Canary Project is a group of artists who are doing more fine art-based projects and activism-related activities. So I, I think there are a lot of us out there, and I hope that we can continue to you know, grow a community of photographers that are concerned with this. I have my students all working on issues because well, we need like to do that. Everyday climate change, you mm -hmm. know, it's it's a it's a great way to get people together to to kind of cover things in a in a larger sense instead of bits and pieces here and there. And I, I love the idea. I love the idea of other photographers that are concerned that are doing this kind of work to kind of come together and maybe put together a project on a larger scale. Yeah, that would be very exciting is to have a sort of a museum or some large public art initiative where 
you someone curated all of the work that photographers around the world are doing about this issue because you, you would invariably learn so much about the subtleties and nuances around this issue that everything isn't so blunt and black and white. Well, thank you, Carolyn. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, John Harris, our producer, Jason Taples, our engineer. For more photo news and reviews, check bh.com backslash explorer. Follow us on Twitter at bhphotovideo and email your questions to podcast at bnhphoto.com. My name is Alan Weitz. Thank you all for joining us today. 